Hello and welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Niall Boyce, editor of The Lancet Psychiatry. Today you'll be hearing from two other people from the Lancet team. First of all, Andrew Bianchi will discuss whether it's possible to ever really change your mind. And the second item is Jules Morgan talking about a new digital innovation in mental health. Hello, I'm Andrew Bianchi. Today we're talking about changing minds, not only in the sense of altering decisions we've previously made, but also looking at the societal and medical processes capable of shaping our worldviews. I'm joined in our London studio by Gwen Adshead, who over the course of 2016 will be giving a series of lectures on this subject. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, my name is Gwen Adshead and I'm a forensic psychiatrist and a psychotherapist and I am also the Gresham Professor of Psychiatry for 2016. Thank you very much. My first question relates kind of to the subject itself. Does anyone ever really change their mind? Oh, I think so. I think um, probably everybody has an experience of changing their minds. And in fact, across the course of a lifetime, we can probably expect to change our minds many times about many things. But I guess one of the things that we don't understand too well is exactly what happens when we change our minds. And I think one of the things that we're learning is just what an extraordinarily complex process it is. We take it for granted, but actually I think it's quite a complex process. And that's really one of the things I'm going to be trying to talk about in my lectures. You mentioned kind of there how we all do it at some point in our lifetime. Would you say maybe that some of us are more susceptible to changing our minds than others, or does everyone have the equal capability of changing? Well, I think it may be that our minds are a bit more changeable at different times. So, for example, I don't suppose anybody would be at all surprised to think that children change their minds quite a lot. And Indeed, the whole process of education is really a, a process of changing somebody's mind or helping a mind as a mind develops and grows. It's bound to change. And, and probably everybody can remember what they used to think when they were sort of five or six and what they used to think when they were 10 or 11 and what they used to think when they were 21. And these things are not the same. So we would expect to change our minds as our, as, as our minds grow and develop, as our brains grow and develop. But I guess it would be fair to say that the rate of change and growth probably slows down as we get older. But there may also be times of rigidity and inflexibility that are often associated with distress. And one of the things that I think is interesting in, in mental health services is to think about how people often seek psychological and psychiatric help at times when they feel their minds have got a bit stuck and they're wanting to try and change something about the way they think. We talked a bit about kind of minds and brains there. Kind of, would you say are the two the same thing or would you say is the mind something a bit more ethereal and hard to nail down? Well, Andrew, you know, that's the hard problem of consciousness. And if I were able to answer that question, I would be receiving a large prize from the Nobel Committee. So I, I can't really answer that question at all. But what we know from the study of neuroscience, I think, and indeed from the study of minds over millennia, is that there's a complex relationship. Clearly, that you have to have a functioning brain to have a mind. But we also know that, the, that our minds and how they work can influence your brain. So, for example, emotional interactions between people that don't physically exist can have an impact on how your brain responds. So clearly the relationship between brain and mind is going to remain a hard problem for a while. And that's not something I'm going to be answering in, the, in, these, in these lectures. You mentioned there a bit about kind of interactions with people who don't really exist. And I kind of know that you kind of talk a bit in your lecture about art and kind of how that reflects on perceptions and our views of the self. Do you think art can ever really tell us how the mind works or just kind of how people think the mind works? Absolutely, because I think it's very important to 
consider that realities exist in a number of different forms. That just because you can't actually physically touch something doesn't mean it's not real. So for the example, friendship is something that you can't physically touch or even take a picture of. But most people can give a very clear narrative of something that actually exists between them. So I think the relationships are, of course, a crucial part of our human existence and very much part of our mammalian existence too, that we are social animals and our minds are constructed in a social realm, in a social way. There's that non-physical reality of our social lives and experience that is something that, of course, was first described probably best by poetry and drama. That Our first psychological descriptors are really best found, I think, in both poetry and plays. And then, the, then later, um, when we come to the novel, but also, I think, in some of the autobiographical writings of people's religious experience. So... I think that there's no question in my mind that the arts play a crucial role in helping us understand how our minds work. Thank you. You kind of mentioned the religion there briefly, and I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on how religious pressures can shape how we view our own minds and kind of the self as well. Well, I guess I would frame it slightly differently to say that really... um, in a way, the religious traditions and the, all the great faith traditions were very important in forming our understanding of the self. And that there is a, a notion of this two or three thousand years ago of the axial era, in which it seems that in different parts of the world and different cultures, people began simultaneously really to start to think about self-reflection, but all their relationships with different types of realities, including realities that they couldn't see or feel. So out of that came what we think of as the great faith traditions. And they all in different ways have different accounts of the self and identity. And they all in different ways encourage people in a journey of self-exploration and provide different understandings so of how the self works and how the self works in relationships. And if you think a little bit about you know, most of the world's religions, they all offer something about how people relate to one another. And they offer ideas about how people should relate to one another. So there's a sort of type of ethical imperative there as well. So I think that clearly the faith traditions, a bit like like poetry and uh, drama, are again another way of understanding our experience in the world, and particularly our experience with each other. We kind of talked a lot about their ethereal and quite spiritual concepts. I wonder how far you'd agree that political events and pressures can play on shaping the self as well, for example, war or kind of politics. Well, I think these these pressures and influence are hugely influential. And, and this is again comes back to the idea that yourself is not completely personal to you, that yourself is not just that experience that we all have of, of identity, which is about sort of half an inch behind the bridge of your nose. And, and everybody has that type of individual experience. But we also have an experience of being connected to other people. And anybody in a long-term relationship will know how influenced you can be by the person that you live with, you know, their moods, their feelings, their thoughts, and you have that experience on them. And it's it's very clear that from work by anthropologists um, and those anthropologists who are interested in neuroscience, people like Robin Dunbar, who have looked at how our brains have evolved to accommodate our social relationships and particularly the language that goes with that, because you have to have language allows you to have relationships over time 
and when you actually can't see somebody. You say the word ethereal, but I would say that these non-physical realities are just as real as the types of physical reality that you can touch or sit on. But they have a different quality of reality in terms of social relating, and, and again, across time, they can change across time. Increasingly, we're kind of seeing more and more people interact using modern technologies like Facebook and Twitter and things like that. And would you say kind of do these sort of technologies allow us to greater develop ourselves and change our minds? Or would you say do they only allow us to become more and more entrenched in our opinions that we believe are right? Well, I think social media is interesting, isn't it? Because, well, A, it's a good example of how people can construct a social self. And of course, the idea of a social self has been, again, around for for many hundreds of years. And we see this in the rise of portraiture. Um, and I've been very influenced in, in, in developing these lectures with the help of Professor Joanna Woodall, who's Professor of Art History at the Courthold. And she's written very interestingly about the way that the self is portrayed in portraiture. And I think the idea that we have a self that we display to the world and a private self that we perhaps only share with a few intimates is, is, again, it's a very old idea. But that self that we show to the outside world, that can change too. And, of course, can change depending on our social circumstances. For example, issues about shame or when we get caught out doing something wrong. So I think what's interesting about social media to me is two things. One is the depiction of the social self. But the other thing is the fact that you can have a false self, that there can be a real disparity between the self that's out there and the self that's twittering away. And I I also think that there's something about what it does to your depiction of yourself if you only have a limited number of characters to do it. I think that necessarily means that you're limited in what you can say, and it may mean that that's restricting people's experience of self and that's restricting their social relationships. And of course many people have commented that there's the emphasis on the positive in these types of social media, which I think could actually freeze people in a way, could stop people from growing and developing because of anxieties about how they might be seen. Thank you very much. That's a really good point for us to end on. Only remains for me to thank Gwen Adshead for joining us and to thank you, the listener, for downloading. And we hope you join us next time. My name's Jules Morgan, and today I'm talking with Hannah Chamberlain and Tex Dunstan, who are the co-founders of Mental Snap, a video app that enables mental health service users to tell their own stories by recording short video updates. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Tex. Maybe you could start by um, introducing yourselves, Hannah. Yeah, sure. My name's Hannah Chamberlain. I'm a mental health service user and a filmmaker, and I've been working for about 15 years in the two fields of film and, and mental health and noticing that People find film an incredibly therapeutic medium to tell their story. Hi there, Tex Dunstan. I'm a senior lecturer and a programme leader in business with the, uh, an associate college of the University of Plymouth in London. And another role that I have had historically is as a carer to a mental health service user. Let's move on to Mental Snap. Hannah, so how was the concept born and how has it developed? One of my very first films on mental health was looking at Victorian archives and and I looked at these images of uh, mental health service users, these sepia-coloured images with things like mania written on top and them just staring at at the screen and I thought that this was wrong. And, and so uh, from the very beginning of my filmmaking career, it's about helping people to tell their stories, noticing that people find video therapeutic and an easier way to feedback than paper often. And I think that filmmaking is, is a way to reclaim your voice and that documenting your story is incredibly important. These people are documented to the nth degree and it's about reclaiming their voice. 
so moving on from the Victorian records, we thought, how could we make it so that people could co-produce their record? How could we make it feel that their story was actually owned by them rather than being taken by a system that doesn't belong to them? And could that impact and empower their recovery? Technology is now playing quite a vital role in healthcare with sort of ever-growing partnerships across technology platforms. And also video diaries are becoming quite a trend on social media. People will upload their journals, etc., on YouTube and they have a, a huge viewing population. So Tex, I was just wondering how you thought these could work in a healthcare setting. Yeah, as you say, there's um, a lot of exploitation of video in, in across different social media platforms. And let's not forget Twitter has is beholden to Periscope, an app that's used by many users on Twitter. In terms of the question, I think that's going to be a, a key investigation area for us. So as a result, what we're doing is a lot of user testing, if you like, focus groups and so forth, um, uh, canvassing views and opinions of our kind of target markets or audiences, if you like. And what we're we're tending to find with attitudes towards video, use of video, perhaps stimulated by some gentle tutorials about the potential and applications of video amongst our, the people that we're aiming our services at. We're finding that up to two-thirds of people are saying they agree or strongly agree that they can use and would use video and a video diary to their mental health, if you like, as a sort of self-efficacy and, and or behavioural tool. So we're quite encouraged by this. We do see some validation of the, the hypothesis that the video is, is usable in our context and that we can get some, some buy-in to do so. Yeah, I mean, taking up on what Hannah said about telling stories and also what you've just talked about as sort of self-advocacy, I was thinking that your focus is is quite a lot on on making mental health records more transparent and relevant. For example, when you see your doctor, if you're a mental health patient, you may not see the doctor for six months, for a year, and that's a long time to process your own sort of mental health progress. So as well as empowering the mental health user, I think it's probably very useful for them to actually keep a check on their own progress themselves. So Tex, health records are highly confidential and users may have some concerns about data security. What safeguards have you implemented for Mental Snap? Yeah, so this is a very important question. It's occurred to us at the beginning of the process and indeed arisen by those who are respondents to our pilot phases and, and uh, focus groups. It's a key risk area, as I say. What we are doing is aiming for the highest possible standards of security and encryption that are compliant and consistent with, um, you know, the M3 expectations, uh, NHS expectations. We're in discussion with a range of uh, companies and other potential partners, particularly looking at encryption in the transmission of data and data storage at the, the server level. Um, so yes, we're on it and this is not an area we're going to compromise on in as far as we can because it's foundational really for, for what we're trying to do. Thank you. Um, and then finally, Hannah, what stage are you at currently and what can we expect to see in the future for Mental Snap? Well, we've been given a very generous grant by the Paul Hamlin Foundation, which is a great endorsement because it shows that we're kind of, we're doing something that 
that is relevant and that people can have kind of got behind and so on. So what we're doing is we're doing a prototype. And the prototype will just be for the personal record of the mental health service user. And there's a potential where we can find an informal way of sharing it just with family and, and friends. Uh, but it's, it's mainly to do with the personal record for the service user so they can use it for goal setting, so they can use it for to help with memory gaps, so they can use it to help them reflect on their care plan, or they can use it to help them reflect on, on and monitor their mood. Uh, so that's what we're hoping to do and to prove the efficacy of using video um, as a means of doing that. We're going to be doing that over the next year. So at the end of this year, we'll have something, a product that we will have evaluated and, and can take into the next stage. Thank you very much, Hannah and Tex, for coming in to discuss this very exciting project with us. And I hope Thank all you. goes well Thank for you. you as you move forward with developing Mental Snap. If you want to find out more, please visit their website. It's mentalsnap.com, and that's snap with a double P. And you can follow their progress and perhaps even get involved. Thank you very much. Goodbye.